Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Podcast Series, now the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your host and moderator each week on a broad range of topics, all kind of congealed around the topic of leadership, how to be a better formal or informal leader in your organization, how to be a better leader in your personal life as well. And today our topic is centered around fatherhood, specifically welcoming the author of the new book, The Dad Advice Project, Words of Wisdom from Guys Who Love Being Dads. Clearly, I was not a contributing author because you know how difficult it is for me as the father of three young sons, ages six, nine, and 11, all to my wife's horror, who have my DNA and personality. Craig Kessler, author of the new book, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, it's great to be here and I appreciate you having me on. Craig, we share so much in common, although I left Harvard a little before you did. No, I'm kidding. I actually visited Harvard once and took many pictures to imply that I had, quote, attended there. But what we do have in common is that our lovely wives each helped to give to us three young sons. We, we had three boys in five years. You and your wife had three boys, I think, in four years. And together, that is absolute insanity. Today, you're not here in your role as the CEO of Top Golf, or I'm sure, although I'm sure there are lessons that can be applied from your role as a dad to your role as a COO. First, I'd like, Craig, you to reorient yourself to our audience, our listeners and viewers, a bit of your own journey, your education, your professional role, and why you came to write this new book called The Dad Advice Project. Happy to do it. Uh, the, the 30 seconds, born and raised in San Diego, California, went to college at Georgetown wanting to be president of the United States and within two weeks of being in DC really wanted nothing to do with politics. Wound up going down the path of becoming a businessman and spent most of my early career in consulting and private equity. And about five years ago, joined as the chief operating officer for Topgolf and it's been an amazing ride. The, the reason for the book is, is, as you pointed out, my wife and I had three boys in four years. Today, they're one, three, and five. And unfortunately, I don't have a great relationship with my dad. And so it's been a huge void in my life, not being able to share the journey and also ask for advice along the way. So about two and a half years ago, I asked a handful of friends to write me a letter on how to be a good dad had no idea what I'd get back and, and what I got back was pretty remarkable and inspirational. And over the last two and a half years, the project has snowballed and the Dad Advice Project was born. So Craig, I'm gonna imagine some large segment of our uh, listening population, viewing population around the world may also have a complicated relationship with their father. Perhaps their father has passed, perhaps they've been estranged or out of touch. Perhaps they're just like many dads and sons. They coexist, but the the physical touch, the intimacy, the respect, the conversations aren't what they wish they would be. So today I would give advice to everyone, whether you are a daughter, you're an aunt, you're an uncle, whether you're a son, your grandson, a father, you know, take some wisdom from this conversation. Craig does not mean to be in any way an expert on fatherhood, but like me, you are struggling through it. You have some wins, you have some losses. In fact, I think one of the premises of many of the pieces of advice that you received in this compilation was that there's a difference between being a father and being a dad. As I read the book, I saw that appear many times on different um, submissions. Talk a bit about the, what you've taken away from the difference between perhaps being a father and being a dad. I think it's such an interesting dichotomy and you're right, it, it does come up frequently in the book. The, 
the summary is basically you, you become a father just by having a kid. You become a dad by doing all the things required to earn that title. Uh, it's showing love for your spouse. It's doing what you can to be present when you are with your kids. It's effectively putting into practice all of the lessons and wisdom that come from the stories that are shared by the 42 authors of the Dad Advice Project. You know, Craig, you and I have talked several times about this book, and I've shared with you, and most of the people that know me and follow me on social media or work with me know that, I'll be honest, I don't enjoy parenthood. I mean, I was single until I was 41. My wife is 12 years younger than I. We had three kids very quickly, and although I'm committed to that journey, it has been a massive struggle for me. It is not my natural calling. Most days, almost every day, I don't enjoy it. And every day someone says to me, you know, oh, this is the best years of your life. Don't you love being a dad? And I don't just think, but I say, actually, I don't love being a dad. It's not natural for me. It doesn't give me a lot of validation. The fighting, the hitting, the screaming, the terror, the anxiety that, quite frankly, it's given me has been palpable. And I'm very comfortable talking about that, not in front of my kids, but in front of you right now. I'm guessing that in your journey as a father and in your um, listening to all this advice, you've had some other people probably be just as vulnerable. I appreciate the vulnerability. You know, it's interesting. My, when my wife read the book for the first time, she had a fascinating observation. She said, when I read advice from mommy bloggers and articles that I come across online, I often find myself afterwards feeling less than. I'm disappointed in myself for not living up to the advice that all of these call pro moms are giving. What she found so interesting about the Dad Advice Project is almost all of these guys talk about themes that are totally aligned with what you just described. Most of the dads talk about all of the struggles that they have not only been through, but are still going through. And in a strange way for her and for me, as we reflected on that, it's kind of liberating to know that fatherhood and, and frankly, motherhood, it's not a fairy tale. There are trials and tribulations. It's ugly. There are fights. And I think for me, when I recognize that that's okay and other people are feeling in a similar way to the way you just described, it, it made it more palpable and, and palatable to be able to go through those struggles because frankly, that's part of the journey. Craig, I think there's 42 plus submissions. You are an aggregator, you're an editor, you're a contributor, you're the author ultimately of this book. And so I'd like to pick out a couple of pieces that kind of hit a sweet spot for me. You know, I was on a podcast this morning and I was talking with uh, the host around how it's always the people with the biggest wealth that tell you money doesn't matter, right? It's always those that are on the other side of fatherhood that can give you the wisdom that shames you a bit on your own journey. One of the pieces of advice that I especially loved was the aspect of physical touch. When I moved from Florida to Utah 25 years ago, there was a gentleman who hired me named Chuck Farnsworth. He was the founder of Franklin Covey's education division. He really took on a father figure for me when I moved from Florida and came to Utah. And Chuck is the father of three children, including at that point was a young, maybe like 11-year-old son. And I was marveled at how often Chuck hugged his son, touched him, kissed him, touched his hair. And although my father has been a great father, he's married to my mother for 60 years, very stable. I don't recall being touched by my dad maybe twice in my life. And I don't know this because my father's dad died when he was 10 and never really had that role model. But 
would you talk about the necessity of physical touch? Because once I've watched Chuck do this with his son, I'm doing it constantly with my boys, whether in church or in a restaurant. I'm constantly touching them so that, that they know the love that can come from physical touch. Speak to that point. I think it's such a cool insight on your part that you picked that up. You know, it's, what's fascinating for me is when the book was complete before it had gone to print, I poured myself a drink, I printed out the manuscript, and I sat back and read it cover to cover. And every single time a new theme or piece of advice came up, I'd write it down. And if it came up a second time, I'd put a tally mark next to it. And, and I did that from cover to cover. And it's interesting that the most common piece of advice that came up in the book is that kids need to feel a sense of both physical and psychological safety. And touch, I think, is one of the most effective paths to getting there. In fact, one of the authors, John Spear, a former B-2 stealth bomber, he writes that the 15 minutes before bedtime, if you can afford to spend that time with your kids at least a couple nights a week, they're actually golden minutes and very precious time because you've got your kid or kids laying down in bed, you're physically tucking them in. If you've got the time, you may be even laying next to them reading a book. And the byproduct of being able to do that and have the physical proximity and touch is that it leads to kids feeling a sense of psychological and physical safety, which frankly is, is, is the root of almost everything in the developmental years. Craig, that drink you poured yourself, do you find yourself revisiting that drink most evenings around 6.30? <laughs> sometimes it's 6.30, sometimes it's much later, but uh, yes, I do, absolutely. I'll come home from a podcast or something, and my wife has like a glass of wine on the counter at 4 o'clock. I'm like, are you kidding me? You have a glass <laughs> of wine? It's 4, hon. Uh, my wife is an amazing mom and wife and friend and human. Uh, you know, we interviewed a couple of child psychologists over the last four 150 episodes, and one of them, I think it was Julie Morgenstern, who actually is an expert on time management, wrote an amazing book called A Time to Parent. And she repeated your advice where she said, really, kids don't need a lot of your time. What they need is sacred focus bursts, that you know, first 15 minutes in the morning where you're not screaming at them to brush their teeth and get out of bed. You're just talking about how did they sleep? What are they excited about today? That last 15 minutes in the evening where you're just calm and you're quiet and that's some repeating advice is it really isn't the amount of time. It's the quality time with no distractions, no phones, no demands, no negotiations where you're just listening and loving. You know, it's, it's a great point and actually one that I still find to be a great debate uh, and particularly among the authors in the book. I think half of the folks who bring this theme up would agree with, with you and uh, you know, folks who you've spoken to in this world of parenting. There are others who say that's just bogus and you need both. And it doesn't have to be both all the time, but this idea of popping in and popping out when you want without any sort of predictability and consistency can actually be quite confusing for kids. Look, I'm only five years into the journey, so I don't know heads from tails and I don't pretend to be uh, an expert by any means. But what I will tell you is this is a hot button issue that people feel very strongly about on, on both sides of the coin. It's true, Craig. Another consistent theme was the power of developing family traditions. I mean, literally two nights ago, 8.30 at night, my fifth grader, his name is Thatcher. He's 11, just turned 11. He comes to me and says, Dad, I have a school paper I have to write, and it has to be about all of our family traditions. He says, what are our traditions? I'm like, well, the fact that you have to ask me is a problem. So we start <laughs> going through all of our traditions. And here's what he wrote. 
we go to church on Sunday, and after church, we go to the club for brunch. And then he wrote, we read books at nighttime and we pray before bed. And then he said, we take the convertible to uh, get uh, ice cream on the weekends. And I thought, oh my gosh, these aren't traditions. These are habits. These aren't traditions. And I was horrified. I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, he wrote, we open a present on Christmas Eve. I'm like, well, that's true. But you're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel. I mean, can you talk for a minute about how important traditions are? Because as my son is trying to write out traditions that he thinks are traditions, but they're not. They're just like routine. They're habit. Your book is haunting me. And I'm like, I got to get some better traditions other than me just screaming at them every day about stop fighting. Talk about the power of traditions. I, you know, I think you're hard on yourself. I think the power of tradition is if it really sticks for a kid, it becomes habit. And seeing the world through the eyes of a kid in a way is innocent and magical. And by the way, I bet your kid loves getting ice cream in a convertible. And that's something, you know, he looks forward to. I'll tell you a tradition we started in our family, which has become habit thanks to the Dad Advice Project. There's a, a contributing author named Josh Redstone. He owns a small business. And Josh <laughs> has this unbelievable tradition with his kids where when they do family dinner, and when I say family dinner, I mean like set the table family dinner, which may happen once a month. They take turns one at a time going around the table, kids and parents, and one by one, each person has to stand on his or her chair, introduce him or herself by name, say one thing that they're thankful for before the next person goes. And we started doing this in our family, and it's been amazing because when we do take the time to set the table, the kids now argue over who gets to go first to say what they're thankful for. And from their point of view, they don't realize that you know, they're practicing gratitudes and gratitude leads to happiness over the long run. They've just grown accustomed to this habit and it's made a difference in our lives. Honestly, I'm not sure that's so different than getting ice cream as a family after church or going to the club to have a good time. I think what's important is you've built these routines that again, give kids a sense of predictability and, and a sense of safety and love. Well, thank you for your friendship because had you seen the last ride to ice cream, my nine-year-old son, Smith, does not understand gravity. So in a matter of seven minutes, I bought him three separate ice cream cones because he dumped them literally walking from the counter to outside. He dumped all three ice cream cones on the ground. My wife wondered, why did ice cream cost $36 that day? Because my middle son, <laughs> so there were some probably choice words after that. I love you, Smith. Sorry, buddy. Um, here's another theme that was yeah. recurrent in the book, and that is just kind of being mindful of how the gravity of the impact we have on our children, on the words we use, on how we treat our spouses, on how we model our own behavior, that they're watching us much closer than we think they are. And I, it haunts me because, you know, my dad raised me well, and my parents taught me well, and occasionally I lose my cool and lose my temper and use some words that I'm not proud of, occasionally meaning about four times a night. And I love my children or do anything for them, but remind us all around the gravity of our actions and our words and the, the indelible imprint they're making on our children? Uh, the best way I can answer that question is with a short personal story. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. All of us, when we go to sleep at night, have your version of pajamas, or, or maybe you don't wear pajamas at all. But for me, when I go to bed at night, I wear sweatpants and usually a cotton collared shirt. I don't know why, but it's what I've worn for the longest time. 
And in the last few months, I've seen my three-year-old and five-year-old, when they get out of the shower and we try and put them in their pajamas, they routinely say, I want to wear what dad's wearing. And they run into their closet, they put on their sweatpants and the two or three collared shirts they have that are on rotation. And, and they now sleep in the exact same thing dad wears to bed. And by the way, it's it's a small, silly example, right? Pajamas. But, but the point of the story is our kids are watching every little thing we do so closely. And whether we see it or not, they're replicating so much of what we do. And it's a constant reminder for me, whether it's pajamas, the way I treat my wife, the way I treat colleagues at work and friends in the neighborhood, they are learning to behave and to think and to act based on how my wife and I parent them. And on the one hand, you know, that creates a lot of responsibility and, and maybe even pressure. But on the other hand, what an awesome opportunity to view parenthood as this blank canvas. And it's up to us to figure out how we want to paint it for the next generation. I loved one of your submissions. Thank you for that, Craig, from Seth. Is it Wolkov that um, gave you a whole list of, gosh, 20 different items and they all are humiliating to me. But one of them that I love especially is number 11, because um, as you may know, and many viewers know, I've written a series of books called Mess to Success. And I'm very, very comfortable sharing my messes as I have today to perhaps my wife's whore about my lack of joy being a father. Number 11 is be vulnerable by sharing your failures and mistakes with them. Let them see you cry. This is especially important for sons. Riff on that for a moment. I, look, I, I, it's, it's fascinating, uh, and I'll do my best not to cry as I answer the question. Men tend to be private, myself included, and it's harder. I don't know if it's harder. It's hard for us sometimes to share what's on our hearts and on our minds. What I found fascinating about this project is that as I asked dads to participate, it was almost instantaneous. Their shoulders dropped, they exhaled, and the vulnerability came to the surface and people were willing to share. And whether, and I'll give you a few contributing authors who I found interesting, George Tenet, the former CIA director, Davis Love III, the Ryder Cup captain, Adam Wainwright, a Major League Baseball pitcher. These are guys who are in the limelight all the time and are deeply private people. But when it came to talking about fatherhood, something gave them the permission to just tell it like it is. And, and as you read their submissions, what you'll realize is they're all vulnerable when it comes to fatherhood. And, and I think it's what's actually made them such wonderful fathers. I think where we get into trouble is if we keep our guard up and don't show our true colors. And that's when, frankly, the joy of fatherhood never really makes its way to the surface. You know, you end the book, Craig, with kind of your own summation where you debunk some of the ideas that you've maybe heard, where perhaps you even disagree with some of the things I've said today, including quality over quantity time. I, I love this point you take around as kind of a summation. Encourage your kids to take risks and support them, especially when they fail. And that's so true, right? Because as we've had child psychologists on and therapists and world-renowned doctors on this podcast, it's a recurring theme that we all want to protect our children. We want to make sure that they're safe and that they don't have their feelings hurt, they're not embarrassed. And in many ways, it's a, it's a tension, it's a balance, is it not, between letting our kids fail and learn and grow and protecting them from harm and evil and embarrassment. Uh, from all the compilations and your curation of this, what did you learn around the balance of sort of not holding your kids so tight where you crush them and not letting them go so loose where they just fly away too soon 
but that sort of balance between letting your kids grow through failure while still protecting them from harm. There's a lot of richness in your question, and I'll do my best to, to give it a go. You know, I think kids need to learn not just how to fail, but also how to cope. They're going to have, over the course of their lifetime, heartbreaks, personally and professionally. Uh, they're going to struggle in their careers. They may lose friendships or, frankly, anybody who may be close to them in their lives uh, may not be there forever. And so kids need to learn how to cope. And one of the best ways to do that is through failure, all types of failure. I also found interesting, you know, this idea of we're going to spend most of our uh, awake hours as adults in the business world. And in the business world, I think the best businesses out there, you look at companies like Amazon and Tesla, and frankly, this is even a part of the DNA here at Topgolf. In order to push the envelope and innovate, you have to take risk. And by definition, if you're going to take risk, you're not going to bat a thousand. You're going to strike out and you're going to have mistakes along the way. And the sooner we learn to take risks, the more likely we are to make a difference in the world. But at the same time, we need to recognize before we take them, it's not going to work out. And I think whether it's in the workplace with members on our teams or in the home with members of our family, creating a safe space to experiment and try new things is just as important as being there to pick up the pieces in a healthy way when things don't work out. You are annoyingly wise and smart. So let's pivot off that for a moment. <laughs> Greg, what advice would you give to the fathers like me out there that love their kids, would do anything for them, but their kids are at the age where they're just dragging them down? Any advice from the 42 submissions that you've learned from your own experience to say, you know what, practice this or think more about that. What, what, what advice would you give me? Uh, Scott, I'm in no position to give advice. My oldest is five. So, so here's how I'll answer the question. And, and it's actually, it's related to, but separate from the dad advice project. So before we had our first boy a little over five years ago, almost six years ago now, I asked about, I don't know, 20 or 30 working women for one piece of advice on parenting. And I would boil everything I learned from those women down to three points. Uh, the first is that kids don't break. So take a deep breath. Babies don't break. If they get a little dirt in their mouths, they get sick. 99 out of 100 times, they will rebound. The, the second piece of advice was try and be present because you may only get to do this once. And the third, and I think this is the real answer to your question, the third most common piece of advice was uh, don't judge and maybe you won't be judged in return. W what works for your family will almost certainly not work for your next door neighbors and vice versa. And so if we all take a deep breath, we roll with the punches and just do the best we can from this moment forward, we'll be okay. Craig, this sounds like a cliche, but like you, I have been an officer in a public company managing multi-million dollar budgets and thousands of people over my career. I have written numerous books. I've spoken, podcast hosts, I've been on TV. I've done some of the hardest things in the world. None of it compares to what will happen around 5.30 tonight when my three boys are at their, at their, their peak, right? Where I have to ask them nine yeah. times to take a shower and eight times did they brush their teeth. And it, it'll all be lies. It'll all be manufactured things. And I literally have to just keep it together not to lose my you know what 
and keep my marriage together at the same time. I love the fact that you are on this journey. Your humility is palpable. I love that you took the time to compile the wisdom called the Dad Advice Project. Highly recommend people buy this book. And by the way, my boys love Top Golf. We go there probably once every six weeks, honestly, for the food. Because the food is amazing at Top Golf. I mean, the golf is good, but the menu is amazing. Tell us a bit about what the future of Top Golf looks like. First of all, thank you for, for coming in. I'm so glad to hear you and your, your kids are, are big fans. We work hard to make sure everyone has just an unbelievable guest experience when they come. You know, the future at Top Golf is bright, really bright. Uh, we recently uh, merged with Callaway, so we're really excited about the endless possibilities we have as a part of the Callaway ecosystem. Uh, you know, everything I'm saying here is, is publicly uh, acknowledged at this point, but we're going to continue to grow and add venues uh, all across the world. Uh, we've got nearly 20,000 associates in the brand who every single day are, are basically empowered to go out there and live out what we call our rally cry, which is to create moments that matter for everyone and to make a difference in people's lives. And as far as the food and beverage goes, I, I am so glad you've picked up on that because our our culinary and beverage talent work their butts off to deliver a great product. It's almost all made from scratch and uh, we're really proud of, of what we've put together. Well, our family are tennis players. My boys love to go to Top Golf. So maybe one day Thatcher will add to his list of traditions known to me as habits and routines, how much he loves going to Top Golf because he does. Craig, thank you. The Dad Advice Project, words of wisdom from guys who love being dads, also written for Scott Jeffrey Miller. Thanks for your time today. We appreciate your time. It's great to be on and uh, look forward to spending more time together with you in the future, Scott. And everybody, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your consistent uh, emails you send in, your texts, your tweets, your private messages to me around what you like and what you don't like as well. We're open to your suggestions. You're welcome to email me at scott at scottjeffreymiller.com and give me your advice on future guests. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.